Psst. Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from the high school lit class. We'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Episode one, season two. Yes, so excited. Before we start, small disclaimer, I am almost done with a few weeks of nights and my throat is not happy about it. (laughs) So I'm a little raspy. I know, me too. I've been sick for the past 10 days and it was a throat infection. So my throat is also not at 100% today. That's okay. We're going to power through. We are starting out our journey in Mexico with The Murmur of Bees. It was translated by Simone Bruni or Simon Bruni. I don't actually know. I think Simon. Yeah. Simon. Oh, so Simon Bruni. Um, It was originally written in Spanish. This book is hard to define in a genre, but the book is centered around the Morales family. The heads of the family are Francisco and Beatriz, and they live with their children and wet nurse, Nana Reja, who has been the wet nurse for almost everyone in the family. They live in this town called Linares, and they're basically landowners. They have a whole bunch of land that they have given out to less wealthy people to take care of, but it's ultimately theirs. It tracks back to the older feudal kind of system of land ownership where they oversee all these other plots. So the book starts with Nana Rehab, the wet nurse, suddenly leaving the house one day and she walks away. Everyone is scared because they don't know where she's going. And she finds this child under a bridge named Simonopio, who is the child that the cover refers to because he's completely covered in bees. And everyone's really scared at first, but throughout the book, the bees are his companions. And the story is told about how Simonopio and the family affects what happens to them and their relationship with them. It starts against the backdrop of the Spanish flu and the Mexican Revolution. And that really influences a lot of the events in the book. As we go through the book, we hear more about the Mexican Revolution and how it focused on land ownership and how that affects the family because a lot of the workers who are hired by Francisco are unhappy with the way things have been dealt out. One of the workers who is really unhappy about it is named Anselmo and he kind of comes to prominence as the antagonist in the book. And then the story is told through the perspective of an omniscient narrator and Francisco Jr., who is the youngest child of Francisco and Beatriz. They have two other children, Carmen and Consuelo, who are older daughters. They get married and move away to Monterey, which is a bigger city. Do you have anything else to add about the summary? I think that was it. That was a great summary. All the events are based off real historical events, but the characters are all fictional. Yeah, what theme did you pick? I picked Wonder. Huh. I felt like that was kind of the emotion that surrounded Nana Reha, the way she was described. And then also when they found Simonopio and tried to understand what was happening and didn't really. And it was kind of in the state of wonder that they reacted to him. What theme did you pick? I picked Faith Hmm. for kind of the same reason, kind of, but... The, I think in a number of ways, the book is surrounded by faith because they're Christian and they believe in a God and they talk about that in the book a lot. But I think the reason why I picked it is that in the very beginning, you kind of find out that Simonopio has these kind of powers 
not really powers, but just kind of a sixth sense where he knows when something bad is going to happen. And Mm -hmm. so as a child, the whole family has – they just believe everything that Simonopio – I have trouble saying his name. Simonopio um, Mm -hmm. tries to tell them. Another aspect is that Simonopio can't speak. He doesn't have the ability to talk in the book. So he's mostly communicating through... Well, he can speak. They reveal later that he can. He just, like, chooses not to. And, like, the the way he speaks is different. Yeah, because of his cleft palate, he... It's hard for other people to understand him. Yeah, so he, he doesn't have the ability to... Or he doesn't choose to talk. And so... If Simonopio has a feeling that something bad is going to happen, he lets someone know in some way or the other, and everyone just believes him. So they have a lot of, of faith in in him and his ability to have the sixth sense. Yeah, that's a nice theme. And they kind of go, they're associated with each other. Before we talk about the plot and the themes that we noticed, I wanted to go through a little bit about the Mexican Revolution. Yes, please I, do. Because, <laughs> because I was expecting a to learn a lot about the Mexican Revolution yeah. through this book, but unfortunately, I don't think it gave me the insight that I was expecting. Yeah, it's very complicated, and actually, this is the first, and I think the only book of this author's that has been translated into English, and I think for the audience that it was intended for, people would have a lot more background of what was going on and how that influenced the events in the book, because they would have learned about it in school and in their lives. We don't have that background, so I did a little bit of research, and the Mexican Revolution was actually one of the first civil revolutions in the 1900s, and it's estimated that a million people were killed during the revolution. So Mexico was ruled primarily by Spain until the 1800s, similarly to the U.S. with the colonial powers, and in 1810, they gained independence. And for the first 50 years after independence, it was very tumultuous. The president changed 75 times. Until finally there was a coup that brought someone named Porfirio Diaz to power in 1876. And his control then lasted three decades. His rule coincided with a large global industrialization and growth in large cities. But unfortunately, the urban poor and a lot of rural areas didn't see much change. And so in the early 1900s and 1910, a wealthy landowner, Francisco Madero, ran against Diaz in the elections. He was imprisoned by Diaz, but then he was released, went to Texas, and kind of drafted a revolutionary plan that spread throughout Mexico. And these revolutions were happening in different areas of Mexico, often with different motivations behind them. There were a lot of people that were disillusioned with the lack of growth in in rural areas, as well as um, issues with land reform and lack thereof. Ultimately, in the 1920s to 1940s, The state power became more integrated with the military, and a lot of the reforms were finally implemented, and that kind of trickled down into the presidency and government of today. I didn't actually know that a lot of the motivating force for the revolution was about land reform, which is something that's a central plot in the story. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's kind of crazy. 75 Mm -hmm. changes? That seems like a lot to go through for a country. The Mexican Revolution and the Spanish flu are two historical events that happen in the book. I think the Spanish flu is, they have one part of the book that specifically talks about it. But the Mexican Revolution is just something that's kind of happening in the background. They just say in passing something about the revolution and I didn't have the context that I needed. So I was just, and I was hoping that they were going to focus on it at some point in the book, but. Yeah. And I think of those two events, the Spanish flu and the Mexican revolution, Mm -hmm. they explain the Spanish flu more, which I actually got a little bored of because I think since COVID, the general public has a little bit more understanding of the Spanish flu than we would have otherwise. And also just because of my work and through being at the hospital and being in medicine, I learned a lot mm-hmm. about the Spanish flu, which actually didn't even originate in Spain. It's a misnomer. Um, it originated in the United States, we think. And it was just named Spanish flu because Spain was the most neutral and reported the most cases, whereas other governments tried to hush it up. But I guess we can start there since that happens towards the beginning of the book. What did you think about all those descriptions of people dying and kind of how the flu was decimating the country. One thing about the book that I really appreciated 
was whether it was the original writing or the translation of it, both maybe, I had very vivid imagery while reading this book. And so that part where they're talking about the Spanish flu was really visceral because they just talk about dead bodies piling up and I can visually see that as I'm reading the book. And obviously the Spanish flu happened at a different time than COVID. It was a little bit hard for me to relate the two. It seemed a lot scarier, the Spanish flu, than it did, than COVID did to me, I guess. Oh, interesting. I had the opposite experience. I think because I was in New York when it happened and I was at the hospital, the way that she described the grave digger getting dead bodies wrapped in sheets that were left on the street and then having to take them, it reminded me of the dead bodies that were held in refrigerated trucks in New York Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Well, it just shows you that so little changes that a lot of the descriptions of that pandemic can easily apply to COVID. Yeah. I mean, I almost totally forgot about the refrigeration thing until you just said it because I think I just cut it out of my mind because yeah. it was just too sad to think about. But yeah, you're actually right. It it d- does have a lot of unfortunate similarities between the two. There's one aspect of the those Spanish flu pages where they talked about how Lazarus has risen. Mm-hmm. And I felt like that portion of the book was very long and I wasn't sure why they were focusing on that. I had the same thought. I felt like maybe my only criticism of the book was that part about the Spanish flu and that Lazarus subplot was too long. It then didn't really impact the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. Basically what happens is during the Spanish flu segment of the book, one person goes to a graveyard because he thinks he's going to die because he's sick, but he doesn't die. I think he survives the, the sickness and he exits the graveyard and people think that he has risen from the dead mm-hmm. and everybody in the town is excited or in shock or just all kinds of emotions because they think that Lazarus has risen when he he didn't. He just was immune to the sickness for whatever reason. I was waiting for for that part of the book to connect somewhere else, but it never did. Yeah. So after I finished the book, I was like, why why did why was there like a hundred pages of this thing that happened? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the main thing I see in it is actually the themes that we both brought up. It kind of sets the stage for the book to include those themes because. When Lazarus, or his name isn't Lazarus, but he renames himself Lazarus after Mm -hmm. this event. When he comes back, everyone treats him as if he is some kind of divine power or has been touched by a miracle. And they're all kind of in wonderment about what happened. And this was one of the places I saw the theme because I wanted to know, like, does wonder require some kind of mystery or ignorance? Because at one part, he says that he doesn't actually die and the priest who is supposed to give a sermon or who has been kind of bringing the town together realizes it's not a miracle and then his whole attitude towards it changes and it Mm -hmm. changes how he perceives that event so it made me think about how they portray wonder and those themes in the book yeah and i think like you said how it that whole segment ties into our themes is i i think that's why I stuck with faith because that happens in the beginning of the book. And all these people have this newfound faith in this man that survived the sickness. And they think that they're out of the pandemic. And they think that they're all saved because this person survived. And he's just a glimmer of hope in this city. So, I mean, I guess that's what gave people the courage to live life normally again. So maybe in that sense, that's what they needed is that person of that they could put their faith in mm-hmm. or just some faith in general because a lot of people need faith to live life i also see it in the opposite way because later in the book when this happens kind of as the climax of things when that man comes who says he can sing underwater and mm-hmm. he, they even call him a wonder he's called the mm-hmm. true wonder and everyone is so excited to see him turns out to be fake Kind of that was set up for us. We expected it not to really to be real. But everyone goes there and Simonopio goes without Francisco Jr. And that's when the whole tragedy happens where Francisco Sr. dies. Francisco Jr. is hurt 
and Simonopio isn't around, even though he finds out probably a little late that something is wrong. And I thought in that, I don't know if she was making a critique or observation, but just commenting on how that kind of feeling of wonder can be a distraction. Mm -hmm. And I think we always think of wonder as a positive emotion. You go to a national park and you see mountains and you feel in awe or even, you know, if somebody has a really special talent and you feel a wonder at them. But in this book, it's really negative and it distracts from what else is going on and kind of encompasses and maybe overrides Simonopio's innate intuition. And I wonder if the Lazarus subplot sets up that feeling. Yeah. That you shouldn't be so easy to give in to that sense of wonder. That's true. And I think the whole book kind of goes in these tangents of the main storyline. The Lazarus tangent didn't seem too out of place as I was reading the book because Mm -hmm. that kept happening where they were, something was happening and then the next chapter they would go back in time and explain something that's about to happen. And I don't know, but now that you explain it in that sense, I could see why they should explain that in the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. But just going off of that, I really liked the non-linear storytelling style that they used in this book. Mm -hmm. Because the whole book kind of alludes to this climax that you mentioned that Francisco dies. But you don't know what the climax is and they tell the story in a way that it's kind of memory like like it's when you're telling a story to one of your friends you don't necessarily say it in order you're kind of going back and forth or explaining the backstory of someone else in the middle so that that person has context and it's not there's no structure to it mm-hmm. and so there wasn't that much structure to the book but at the same time it felt intentional but that one segment where the climax is about to happen i don't know how she does it as a writer but you know what's about to happen without her having to say it yeah and you know that francisco's about to die even though they haven't said anything about francisco dying in the in the previous chapters of the book and it, that segment of the book was so hard for me to read it was and that part of the book gets very dramatic too there's a line about the bees she writes They knew what they were there to do. They would kill that day, and most of them would die doing so. I was like, this is like, I just got, it makes me think of all these like Indian poets who would talk about like sacrificing themselves, and it gets very dramatic. And you're right, she sets it up that you know what's going to happen, and you're just waiting and waiting. I felt like for the first half of the book, I was up and down with how I felt about it. I did think that the Spanish flu chapters were a little long. And then in the middle, it goes back and forth. And there's not so much of a cohesive story as yet. But yeah, towards the end of the book, I was just racing through mm. to find out, or I guess to confirm what we knew was going to happen. Yeah, I agree. I, I felt the same exact way. Once you get that bad feeling, okay, like something, she's alluding to something in in these chapters. Like something's about to happen. I think I finished the book the rest of the book in like a day because I was just speeding through mm-hmm. it. And I was, but also at the same time, I had to keep putting it down because the str- I couldn't handle the stress of it. Because it's like, so basically, Anselmo, which one of the characters that Shithi mentions in the beginning, he's a very evil, just- He's a villain. Like yeah, he's, like he's portrayed like a, as a stereotypical villain. Exactly, yeah. Like everything about him, the way that they describe him- his mannerisms, the way that he acts, the way that he speaks, everything about him is evil. So you know this man is going to do something at some point in the book. And they tell you that because Simonopio's sixth sense, he says that this guy is a coyote. Like, he always refers Mm -hmm. to him as the coyote. So then you know, like, okay, this guy is not not a good guy. He's going to do something. And then there's this one, oh my gosh, I think one of the Morales, Morales family's help gets killed. Her name is Lupita. And she gets killed in a very tragic and vulgar and gruesome way. And you, you're already feeling so bad for what happened because of the way they describe how she's killed is just wrong. And then Francisco, the father, he is like, I have to protect my family. I have to protect everybody now. I can't let this ever happen again. So he gives... Anselmo a gun 
because Anselmo is part of their land and he wants his land to feel protected. So he gives the minute Francisco gave this man the gun, I was like, what are you doing? I no. know. It was like oh one gosh. of those parts in a horror movie where they're, they're like followed. Opening the, the door. Yeah. They follow yeah. the noise. That's like, it's like, why, why are you doing this? And so, if, and they, they say it in the book. I think I don't, can't remember exactly what she said, but something among the lines of Anselmo being, happy for the first time or smiling for the first time Mm -hmm. when he gets that gun and my heart just dropped yeah she writes that part really well of Anselmo he he basically rapes and murders this woman Lupita Lupita, and she never describes those events but she describes Lupita walking home alone and she describes Anselmo's emotions and his rage and you know that that's what happened Mm -hmm. she doesn't have to come out and say that he met her in an desolate field and he pulled a knife like she doesn't describe any of those events but the way that she leads up to it you know what's going to happen and i feel like that mirrors a lot of what happens in the book about simonopio's intuition where he kind of knows what's going to happen without the specifics of it Mm -hmm. and talking about simonopio do you think why do you think he didn't warn the family about Anselmo? because the whole book like you said he refers to him as the coyote he thinks he's bad news, but I don't think he ever tells the family, his godparents, or even Francisco Jr., who he has a connection with, that he thinks he is the coyote. Or should he have? I think, no, that's a good a good point. I don't, because in every other situation where something bad was going to happen, he communicated it somehow mm-hmm. without telling them the exact details. Like, another example is when the Spanish flu is about to hit Linares, the town that they live in Simonopio somehow gets the family to get up and leave for a couple months and come back once things have settled down mm-hmm. so he does have he, he has done it in the past and tried to push and pull the family in a way that he can keep them safe maybe his intuition wasn't strong enough to know what exactly he was gonna do mm-hmm. or how he was gonna do it another way to think about it is that sometimes when you're really afraid of something it's kind of out of sight out of mind makes you feel better mm-hmm. and Simonopio is so young when when he realizes that this man is pure evil that i think he's scared yeah and so he doesn't want to create it. more fee or, or create more fear mm-hmm. by telling people what he thinks this man is i think also he thinks that he's the lion so maybe he thinks it's kind of an individual struggle and his role in the family is is different than the other kids in the family. Mm-hmm. He has a very special relationship with his godparents, but you get the impression that he thinks he is a special contingency or a visitor or not in the same kind of place as the children because he does his own thing. He goes off for days and comes back and maybe if he thought this was going to be an individual struggle, it didn't concern the family. And he only existed in the family to help them, but didn't feel like they needed to intervene for him. Because after Francisco Sr. dies, there's a part where Simonopi realizes that he wasn't the lion. Francisco Sr. was the lion. Yeah. And I think another thing is that there are chapters that are not in Anselmo's perspective, that but are focused on him. And his hate and anger seems more directed towards Simonopio. For some reason, mm-hmm. he thinks that he's the devil and he doesn't want him near like his family or his kids or anything. And though he hates Francisco Sr. for... I mean, what's the real reason he hates Francisco Sr.? It's just because he doesn't want to be bossed around. Yeah. He's resentful, I think, about mm-hmm. the land. I don't know if this is intentional or not, but... The way the book is set up, we are meant to like the family, the Morales family. And they are wealthy landowners, and it's implied that they are of Spanish or European descent because he has blonde hair, and some of the other things are implied also. Whereas Anselmo and some of the other characters are of indigenous descent. And I think Nana Reja is also indigenous. Yes. And it, and they talk about how they don't know Spanish that well. They probably speak, um, a native language. And I don't know how I feel about the fact that we are meant to like the quote unquote 1% 
And Anselmo, who is negatively impacted by the way all this land ownership is dealt out and has been disadvantaged in a similar way that Native Americans were disadvantaged, is a very cartoonish villain. I don't know if there's something I'm missing, but it felt a little reductive to me that he has all this rage and then he takes it out on the servant and then like a resentful servant taking revenge on his masters. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to make of that because... It, is she giving commentary on it? Is she aware that she's doing that? Yeah, I I know. I the way the book is written, you can't read it through the eyes of supporting Anselmo. Unfortunately, you can't because he's she doesn't really make him a likable person. Yeah, he's not a neutral. But he's not likable. They perp- she purposely writes him in a way that he is pure evil, and so mm-hmm. it's it's hard because. You're right that he is probably being taken advantage of, probably isn't living life that he would have if this land was not owned by these rich kind of white people. And it's not a fair storytelling in the perspective of the indigenous people, I think. It's very white-centric and Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit racist. Because they maybe a little classist. Because they also explain that Anselmo and Nana Reha are dark. Yes, and I think that's kind of unnecessary. Yes, and I mean I think a lot of the book the characterization was distant. It didn't feel like I could inhabit the characters, and I think that's partly because there wasn't so much dialogue, so you don't get to learn the mannerisms and speech habits of the characters, but. Particularly Nana Reha has no personality. She is talked about in conjunction with her rocking chair and she exists to exist. The family gets used to her sitting there, but she doesn't play any other kind of role. She was a wet nurse for this whole family and that also I think is a trope of natives where they are equated with the earth and giving, but then not having not being given a voice or a personality of their own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Anselmo, I think when we were talking about earlier with Simonopio, he treats him as the devil. That rage, he at least gets some characterization, but again, it's all one faceted. He's only bad. And his rage is all directed towards thinking that Simonopio is the devil because of his appearance. And then the family, Francisco Sr., when these laws come about that's, that are trying to give some of the land back to the more rural, poorer people who, and probably the indigenous people, he basically comes up with a way to circumvent it. And it's, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what we're supposed to think about that. I know. It's, it's hard because I don't, I think these were all things that were hinted throughout the book. And I was so enveloped in that storyline and the climax and just that. All these things were like, okay, red yeah. flag, okay, red flag, okay, red flag. But I was ignoring them all because I was like, let me just read this book. And then as I'm analyzing it after I finished mm-hmm. reading it, I was like, these are problems. Like, these are actual problems that I chose to ignore while reading the book. And mm-hmm. the genre is historical fiction. And I think that's where I have the issue is you can choose to tell history in a fair way and an educated way and I don't Mm -hmm. think this book did that so I think I would feel better about the book in general if it wasn't labeled Mm -hmm. as historical fiction maybe but the problem with the way it's written is that you know people always say history is written by the victors and when you write it this way you don't show nuance to those disempowered characters it tells a very specific kind of narrative that is supportive of the people already in power because we don't get any characters who are in a similar position as Anselmo but maybe a little bit more moderate where they are resentful and maybe they participate in the revolution maybe they don't maybe they just try to negotiate with Francisco Sr. about the terms but they're not like a rapist in yeah or we don't even get not that you want to be sympathizing with rapists and a murderer, but plenty of books do it really well. We don't get that yeah. kind of inside look at his psyche to help us understand the struggles that Anselmo is going through. 
And in that way, it felt very much like a Disney story where I did. Yeah. I maybe it was because of the lion thing or the coyote thing. But when I was picturing Anselmo's face, for some reason, I was picturing scars. I was picturing like Jafar. You're totally right. It was like a very typical villain story that they were telling. But now Disney's ha- is doing a good job of telling the other side of villain stories. Like they did the Cruella movie. They did the Maleficent mm-hmm. movie to kind of back up. Okay. These people aren't. Okay. Yeah. Maybe they did bad things, but there was reasons for it or they felt like this was like their revenge story or maybe they're not that bad and they were just misunderstood and then someone doesn't mm-hmm. get that th- throughout the book and i had yeah. zero sympathy for him because he was written in such a way yeah. that he was just like you hate him yeah when I, you're reading from the, the beginning to the end you hate him so much and you want him to suffer you well it's set up that way because the minute they find simonopio and they take this child into their house to take care of him he immediately says that child is the devil mm-hmm and so you're set up to not like him because here's this vulnerable child who has this facial deformity that is going to mean people look at him strangely throughout his life. And then here's this guy calling him the devil, which especially to a modern reader feels very cruel. Mm-hmm. I think at the time and probably throughout history, these kinds of things are viewed as representations of the devil. And that goes back to maybe some of the negative aspects of faith the theme that you mm-hmm. were looking at because in rural areas even in india like we know from stories that people who had mental illness people with physical deformities are outcasts yeah. and they're seen as a curse or some kind of creature that has negative qualities or represents the devil but it's hard to sympathize with that when that's the first thing we hear about him and we don't hear about his struggles and his frustrations that may lead to him making that kind of characterization yeah to take a slightly different tap what did you i wanted to talk about simonopio and his role in the story and the beats what were your thoughts on the beats so i think like the first half of the book is narrated mostly through simonopio and he's a kid and he's adventurous and he loves to explore and he has his bees with him and it was a very like happy part of the book I think Mm -hmm. I was like having fun while I was reading it I don't think I totally understood the bees thing for a while they first talk about it when Nana Reha finds Simonopio covered in bees when he's a baby and I was like that's weird Mm -hmm. and I didn't know they were gonna stick around but then they talk about how Francisco Sr. and Beatrice accommodate for the bees. They're mm-hmm. like, no, the bees are an extension of Simonopio and they start to build hives for him. And I think bees in general symbolize fertility and growth. And maybe that's a reflection of the land. They talk about how Francisco Sr. isn't able to grow anything in mm-hmm. his land. He's having trouble harvesting. I can't remember what they were trying to harvest in the beginning of the book. I can't either. I just remember the orange trees later. Yeah, so then Simonopio gives the idea of the oranges to Francisco Sr. and they flourish. And and so I think maybe that's kind of what the bees represent in a way, this growth and fertility. And also Beatrice, Francisco's wife and Simonopio's godmother, gets pregnant really late in her life. And I think that is also maybe a symbol of fertility and growth because they weren't expecting another child yeah i did a little bit of research and i think um bees in a lot of ancient mythology it seems like bees were a connection between the natural world and the divine world and so because the honey was so important as a sweetener as a symbol and as um something that the wealthy often only had access to it was associated with divinity and richness and it represented positive virtues like purity and wisdom. So I think that only elevates what we had already talked about, that Simonopio is this special boy who has these qualities and that enhances the difference between him and the villain in the book. And these are positive. I think everyone sees these as a positive force and even butterflies, dragonflies. I was trying to think about why she picked bees. 
And then they have this nice, I don't know if it's nice, but they have this symbolism that when they sting somebody, they die, which is, I think, nice symbolism to use in art. So the book, before I started reading it, I knew it had some aspects of magic realism in it, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't too crazy. I think the magic realism started and stopped with the bees. If the bees didn't exist in the book at all, I think it could have had no magic realism in the book. But I think in the beginning of the book, I did misunderstand it a little bit because I was like, oh, the bees think that Sinopio is their queen bee. But then later on in the book, they talk about how the bees have their own queen bee and they have separate hives that they go to. So then I was like, oh, then maybe I was wrong. So um, they don't really give an explanation to why these bees were introduced or why they stayed with Simonopio, but they play a, a pretty big role throughout the entire book. But you're kind of right because towards the end, it's on his orders i guess and so they do kind of treat him in that queen bee role where they go to him for support they stick around him and they come and go for their own tasks and they do follow his command towards the end it's not it's not a simple thing to die yeah doing something yeah you're right that's kind of the only place that this otherworldliness comes through and everything else is very like realism Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm What do you think about the ending of the book? We talked earlier about how Francisco Jr. is the narrator. Mm -hmm. I was kind of confused until maybe halfway or a little bit further in the book about who that narrator was because the chapters that were written in the first person from his perspective felt very different to me than the other chapters. I understand the focus on him, but I think maybe if I was the editor or involved in writing the book, I would keep the whole book in the third person because I just felt like his chapters took me out of the book a little bit oh really even though the chapters that are written in Francisco Jr.'s perspective it does a good job of weaving into other people's stories still Mm -hmm. it doesn't his perspective doesn't take away from other people's stories and so when we read it through his perspective he's a child like a three or four year old child and he can't speak yet, and he's, like, trying to talk to people. And I just thought that was a really interesting perspective to be able mm-hmm. to tell a book through that young of a child. But I will say that I think the only reason why maybe they did that was to have an ending. Mm-hmm. That's true. The book is set up to lead towards Francisco Jr. surviving, being the culmination of the story. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Francisco Jr. really found Simonopio at the end of the book? Mm-hmm. At some point in the end of the book, Simonopio and Francisco Jr. separate, and Simonopio decides to stay in the city that they grew up in, Linares, but Francisco Jr. and his family move away. And so he's in a cab on the way to seeing Simonopio, and they allude to him about to meet Simonopio, but they don't actually tell you that yeah. they do but I, I think he did because he they describe that he notices some bees and he's like the bees are taking me to him what did you picture interesting i was wondering how he was going to see him after all these years because it describes that francisco jr is an old man and we know that simonopio is at least 10 years older than francisco jr so i was just trying to figure out the ages of everyone because they also included I think Carmen and Consuelo still being alive they were in their 80s and I mm-hmm. I was a little confused by that but the way that she writes it and the language being vague I thought it was also possible that Simonopio is kind of falling back into his memories and his imagination and that's how he meets Francisco Jr. rather than actually meeting him in person in mm-hmm. the flesh And then the other way I read it was that he dies and meets Francisco Jr. in heaven. Oh. I could see that being a thing too. Because at that point, they're both old and they live their lives. And yeah, I could see that being an ending too. Yeah. And and it would be nice to know that they got to die peaceful deaths because all the other deaths in their family were pretty violent. Gruesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's true. Because I, I mentioned earlier that the bees were the the only element of magic realism. But I think time also might be. Because mm-hmm. Nanare has already old when Simonopia was brought into the family. And she's still alive like 30, 40 years later. It doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. I think the narrative style, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but the way it's structured and goes back and forth, it also makes you think about the role of time because the story is not told in a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. And I think time is kind of this motif that runs throughout the book. And it's not an obvious thing. It's just alluded to. But I don't know if I saw that as magic realism so much as like maybe a commentary on how random time is Mm -hmm. and we always think of time as linear process and it's not really it's not exactly linear it's not exactly circular it's hard for us to conceptualize the way that time goes but i saw that in her writing style too maybe the the non-linear style makes sense because when you're telling someone like a childhood story of yourself I don't know how old I was when I was telling that story. Like, maybe my mom will tell me that, oh, you were three when this happened. But if I was just talking to you, like, oh, I remember when I was young, this this thing happened to me. And the fact that the book is narrated in Francisco Jr.'s perspective, that non-linear style makes sense because maybe he didn't know the exact timeline of things as he was telling the story to the cab driver. Yeah, and the other thing is that age is so relative. Mm-hmm. Like when you're a child, you think 30 is so old and we're almost 30 and we feel young, you know? And so maybe at the beginning when Nana Ray has described as really old, maybe she's just 40. Yeah. Or maybe or in her like, 30s. I could say that she was probably even in her like late 20s. Like if yeah. you actually think about it, she could have been. But because she's described as this elderly old woman through Simonopio and Francisco Jr.'s perspective, you just assume that she's like already in her 60s or 70s by the time she's introduced. I'm glad we're reading this when we have the perspective to be able to like think about those things. If I had read this when I was 15, it would have been fine to read as a 15 year old and I would have just taken it at face value and been like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, they're the good guys. He's the bad guy. Yeah, it seems like a very simple storyline but Mm -hmm. because of the way that she writes it she doesn't give importance to the fact that Anselmo and Nana Reha are indigenous people that are maybe being treated unfairly but we reading it and analyzing these characters as they are we look at it in in a different perspective of that's not fair Mm -hmm. did you have a passage to share with us um this passage is it's after Francisco Sr. passes away, and there's a good portion of the book after um, Francisco Sr. is killed that is very painful and grieving. The whole family is obviously upset, and they have this feeling that they want to take revenge on this thing that happened to their family. And so this passage is um, right after they find out what happened to Francisco Sr., Although I never worked during those nocturnal serenades, today I can see my mama sitting in the old rocking chair without interrupting, without intervening, but without going away. She did not want to miss a single minute of the strange coexistence of her son and the godson that life had given them. Because one night, between one sweet-sounding song and another, she understood that while life offers no guarantees, sometimes it does offer gifts. And understanding that, accepting it, even without being fully aware of it, the bitterness, the grief, and the deep wound of Beatrice Cortez, now the widow of Morales, began to heal, and her determined streak began to reemerge. I like that passage. There's this bond that happens between Francisco Jr. and Simonopio after Francisco Sr. is killed, and I think it's really beautifully described in the book. Yeah, it is. And I had said earlier that I felt like a little distant from the characters the first half of the book, but maybe that was just a token of the translation or her writing style because when this happens and Beatrice learns that Francisco Sr. dies, it was so sad. 
Yeah. A lot of the books we've read have been very sad, but this was really, really sad in a different way. Mm-hmm. I, I think I even told you when I was reading, I had to stop because yeah. I felt like my chest hurt from yeah. reading about this. I think she just does a really good job of <laughs> the bad emotions. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's easy to write like a happy, ever, happily ever after type of book and a feel good book. Not that this book isn't that. It is happy in some ways, but there's very strong, aggressive feelings in the book, like mm-hmm. revenge and wanting to kill. And and especially that part where she talks about how she had never planned for him to die. She Like, she doesn't even know who she is without him. Mm-hmm. It's just very sad. Yeah. Anyway... Um, are you ready to filter the chai? Yes. I really liked this book. I think there were parts in the beginning that were a little more slow for me. And we already talked a little bit about how some of the characterization was problematic. But I would give this book an 8 out of 10. I think overall, it just did a great job of those emotions that you're talking about. And I really liked the plot points and Suminopia as a character. I I wrote eight on ten too. For the exact same reasons too. I, I enjoyed the book. The beginning was a little bit slow, but like we said, um as soon as you feel the climax building, I couldn't put it down. Um, as I was reading the book, like I said, I ignored the red flags that kind of popped up, so I enjoyed the book. It was mostly post analysis where I started to feel like some um, characters were portrayed unfairly and um, that the book maybe wasn't the choices that she made. Maybe she should have made different choices. <laughs> yeah. And what about the timelessness of the book? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I struggled with this question. I think if it makes you feel better, I said no. I, yeah, (laughs) I think also no. Yeah. And I think the main reason is what we talked about, that when you're writing something in history from a modern perspective and you still choose not to have those nuances, I don't think that's a fair lesson to carry forward. Yeah. And I think that there are other books about the Mexican Revolution, um, Esperanza Rising, I remember reading when I was much younger, that was also told through the perspective of the child, and it really gave agency to a lot of the poor, um, disadvantaged communities that were impacted by it. So I think no, but I would still recommend the book to other people. I think I, I enjoyed the experience of reading it. Yeah, I agree. I think for the same reasons is that I thought almost in every description of what the book was about used the words Mexican Revolution. So I expected a lot more out of like the historical aspect of things. I don't think it was as historical as I was hoping it would be. It doesn't teach you anything. The book doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like it's something that I want to recommend to somebody because I'm like, Oh, you should read this book because it'll teach you about this, this, and this. Like, no, it's just, it's a good book. Yeah, I don't think it will stand the test of time, per se. And the story is a little isolated. Even though the Mexican Revolution is the backdrop, I think the story could happen without that backdrop and yeah, still work. Exactly. I, I feel like it didn't add to the story in any mm-hmm. way. All right. On to Shelf Discovery. What do you have for us? I put one book that we actually read together too, but isn't on the podcast, is Lincoln Highway Highway by Amor Towels. Is that how you say his name? Towels. Amor Towels. Amor Towels. Um, because it's also a book that is in the perspective of a kid, and it's definitely more adventurous than happy. I don't, there are sad things, or not sad, but like bad things that happen in the book. So I think it's just a happier version of this book. And then the other one I have is All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Um, This is definitely more heavy on the 
historical fiction part of the book. Um, that's probably one of the biggest reasons why I read it, but it's also in the perspective of not a little kid, but two kids Mm -hmm. and just kind of talks about how their stories intertwine in the middle of World War II. I have not read All Light We Cannot See, which I think is just backlog. Like, I really need to get to it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I have two as well. The first one is Piranesi by Susanna Clark. Um, It came out pretty recently, and the reason I picked it was relating to my theme of wonder. The book is kind of fantasy and imaginative, but the main character is... I think wonder is the perfect word to describe the main character. He has this very childlike sense of naivety in a way that's inspiring and not annoying. And so that's why I would recommend that book. And then my other one is Cutting for Stone by Abraham Verghese. It's kind of a similar backdrop. It's um, about two twin brothers who are born in, in Ethiopia as the country is on the brink of revolution. And they have a special bond. They have family problems. Also, they were abandoned by their father. Their mother dies. And it's about their journey together and separately with that backdrop. So I think that theme of child's life in a revolution is why I selected this book. And this book, I think, does a better job of weaving in the revolution into the story and directly mm-hmm. impacting the characters. Yeah. Yeah, I think All the Light We Cannot See is very sim- sounds very similar to that. Our next book is The Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. And that is set in Colombia. So um, we'll be reading that one for next time. And I'm excited to head to South America virtually. I've never been. I really want to go. Yeah, next on our list is... Columbia on our little um, trip world around tour. the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. And yeah, I'm excited too. Thanks for listening to the novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you. So send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.